it could just be an office that's open at night that like someone can call and be like hey the cops blocked off this block and my restaurant's on it what's going on i don't know i see i would much rather be a nightmare than a regular man <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the mayor's proposed budget for 2022 is approved by the New Orleans City Council with a few modifications. An appeals court threw out a state judge's order to release longtime Angola prisoner Bobby Sneed, prompting a lawsuit against the parole board. And early childhood education in New Orleans could be vastly expanded if a new proposed mill levy is put to the voters in April's election. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Good morning, Kayla. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Michael, the 2022 budget for the city of New Orleans, which was drafted by Mayor LaToya Cantrell, was passed by the city council largely intact. They did, however, add funding to some key areas to the budget. Tell us about those areas. Yeah, so like you said, um, you know, the way this this process works is that the mayor drafts, you know, the budget and and largely the, the, the major themes of the budget, the major focus areas, those are usually kept intact. And then the city council will come in and you know they'll have certain pet areas or certain you know uh, areas where constituents have been loud so so they want to make some changes but you know usually it's pretty minor um and, and this year was kind of a, a strange year um as well because um we kind of just went through a big budget process so so we did a big mid-year budget adjustment this year um that had to do with the city was going to um uh, allocate, you know, it, the, the money it was going to get from the American Rescue Plan Act, which is a federal bill, a federal coronavirus relief bill. Um, we're expected to get around $400 million um, in uh, federal funds through that program. Um, so, so basically, you know, in the middle of the year this year, we, we went through this whole process to decide, you know, we, we scaled back the city budget, you know, immensely uh, since, since the coronavirus pandemic began. And then, you know, now that we have these new federal funds, what are we going to add back in? What new programs are we going to add back in? So, you know, a lot of, you know, the differences that you're going to see between the 2021 budget and the 2022 budget were really figured out in that mid-year budget process um, that's already happened. So that, that's just kind of some background. Um, it's some areas um, that, that the city council did change. They uh, added $500,000 to create uh, a new office of nighttime engagement. Exactly what this office is going to do and how it's going to work, those details aren't you know, entirely clear yet. Right now, it's just $500,000 for the general idea. Um, but, you know, it, it's been done in other city, you know, a quote unquote nightlife mayor in New York City or a quote bar czar in Orlando. And, and you know, the idea is basically to have, um, you know, a government office that you know, has that, you know, has people available at night that deal specifically with nightlife issues, you know, quality of life issues, you know, so, you know, you're talking about things like a bar is very loud and, and, and neighbors are complaining or, you know, that there's a, a certain problem between the police and a certain restaurant and, you know, that needs to be figured out. So again, the, the hope is that it can just, you know, an office that's a little bit more responsive to, to those nighttime issues. The council also voted to, to expand a pilot program that Mayor Cantrell um, introduced um, is introducing next year. Um, in her original budget, she had um, 
included $500,000 for a pilot uh, right to counsel program, um, um, which would provide legal representation to residents facing evictions. The council you know, liked this idea so much that, you know, that they basically decided that instead of the initial $500,000, they wanted this to be uh, a full $2 million, um, which housing advocates say will be, you know, more adequate to actually, you know, give representation to everybody who needs it. There were also some changes to the uh, district attorney budget and the uh, public defender's budget. Um, the changes to, to those budgets can be, uh, you know, politically tricky. Um, you know, th there's a, a lot of focus, um, especially, you know, uh, on the, the, the criminal justice reform side of things on, on, you know, what's called parity between the two offices. So for a long time, the, the Office of Public Defenders has argued that because it, it, it represents roughly 85% of defendants in criminal district court, that they should be receiving 85%, at least 85% of what the district attorney office gets. Now, Cantrell's budget, her draft budget this year, um, actually reached that goal for the first time. Um, but district attorney Jason Williams, you know, argued for, for extra money specifically for domestic violence prosecution and um, uh, victim services. Um, so they did add $300,000 to the district attorney's office. Um, they also added $85,000 to the public defender's office. Now, the city is arguing that they've maintained parity here because of that $300,000 going to the district attorney, only $100,000 will go to things like investigators and prosecutors. Um, $200,000 is going into a, a victim services fund. Um, so they argue that that really all they've done is add 100000 to the district attorney's like prosecutorial budget. Um, and 85,000 to the public defender's uh, budget, which would maintain that parity level. One last change was uh, um, the councilwoman, Kristen Palmer, um, offered an amendment um, that passed to add $500,000 to buy additional surveillance cameras. Um, an interesting note here was that the Cantrell administration actually, you know, which has really driven, you know, a, a large surveillance expansion in its first term, um, actually argued against the funding. Um, they pointed out that uh, the capital budget already included $550,000 for surveillance cameras um, and that this money wasn't uh, necessary, at least by the administration's um, estimation. So despite that, Palmer went forward and um, the uh, amendment was passed. So that money was added. So those are some of the big items the city council took up. I wanted to add that um, even if you count that full 300000 as 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 uh, you know, even if you don't use the mayor's math, which is only counting 100,000 because only 100,000 is going to prosecutions, um, I think uh, it still gets you to about 83%, which is pretty closer than ever than, they, than they've been to, uh, you know, the full 85% parity. So it seems like the, the public defenders did not do too badly with parity this year. No, definitely not. And yeah, I mean, when I was trying to figure this out yesterday, I, you know, I was kind of joking around, you know, we're, we're talking about a percentage point or maybe a percent and a half difference here. Um, really, you know, an 85%, you know, it's been the goal. It is somewhat arbitrary, but, you know, like Charles is saying, whether you count 100,000 or 300,000, you know, that that general parity goal has, has been met this year. Right. Tell us about Gordon Plaza and what the activists were hoping for and what they got. Yeah, so, you know, Gordon Plaza, um, you know, background here, Gordon Plaza, it's a subdivision um, in the Desire neighborhood um, that was built on top of an old um, toxic landfill. It's, it's an EPA designated Superfund site and residents who've lived there have, you know, uh, 
you know, argued for years that, you know, they want out, but no one wants to buy a home on an EPA designated toxic site. So um, they, they see it as the city's responsibility to, to buy them out of their homes at a fair market price, you know, a fair market price for a home that would not, you know, that is not on a toxic landfill um, and, and help pay for their relocation costs. This wasn't a, a main focus of the budget talks, you know, originally, but, but throughout, you know, this whole budget process, um, Gordon Plaza residents and activists have been basically at every single meeting submitting public comments, you know, on, on every single day, you know, arguing that this needs to be a line item in the city budget. Um, they've estimated $35 million is what it would take um, to, to buy everyone out and help, help, you know, everyone relocate. So, you know, they kind of forced the issue to the forefront this year. Um, you know, they kind of forced the mayor to, to talk about what her plans were going to be and forced the city council to kind of formulate its own plans. That was the main topic of discussion on Wednesday as they were, you know, finalizing the budget. Um, so, so basically what, what was included in the budget was $2 million um, for site assessment. Um, that was added by the Cantrell administration in the capital budget. Um, so basically what their plan is, is to use this $2 million to basically, to, to jumpstart a, a development of the land. So their argument is, you know, if, if we actually turn this land into something like a solar farm or, or a, you know, some other uh, uh, energy producing facility, then we can buy out these people, um, these people's homes as just the normal land acquisition that you would go through for, for any project. You know, they pointed out that in the new federal infrastructure bill, there are billions of dollars, you know, to take up projects just like this, to clean up Superfund sites, to uh, create more renewable um, energy resources. So um, they seem hopeful that if they can use this $2 million to do a real site as assessment, um, bring a real project to the federal government, that they can get that funding um, that would help, you know, relocate everybody and then build something after that. The Gordon Plaza residents who were there yesterday were not at all satisfied with that. Mm. You know, a, a lot of these people have been trying to move for decades now. And for decades, they heard government officials say, yeah, we have a plan. This is right around the corner. We're going to, you know, take some action here. Um, you know, the Cantrell administration officials pointed out that this is really, as far as they know, the first time the city has actually dedicated real resources to to even you know trying to get this process started and they are, are saying this is a very historic moment but again in the eyes of Gordon Plaza residents who have been there who have seen you know loved ones die of cancer and associate that to the to the land they're on it, it's it's still a tough prospect to be asked to wait um, on the other hand um, you know this is a really unique time with this federal infrastructure bill um, so you know you can kind of see both sides there um, but you know, in response to kind of the, the um, argument, you know, from residents that more needed to be done, Councilwoman Helena Moreno, she uh, uh, offered a motion which was passed, which will start a process that will eventually allow the council to allocate $35 million from the capital budget um, to, to help these relocations. And, and so just a, a quick note here is that the city has an operating budget and a capital budget. Um, the operating budget, um, it, it, that's what you know runs the government on a daily basis. It pays for the electricity, for all the employees, um, for all the programming. Um, the capital budget um, is mostly made up of bond funds and federal funds and other grant funding um, for long-term infrastructure projects. Now, the city council is in charge of both of those budgets, um, but doesn't have the same type of year-to-year -year, um, detailed control over that capital budget um, because the 
annual capital budget needs to line up with the city's five-year capital plan. So you can't necessarily add something to the annual capital budget that isn't in the five-year plan. Uh, now, to amend the five-year plan, the city council can do that, but first it needs to get a referral from the city planning commission. Um, and the city planning commission would need to make a recommendation, you know, uh, regarding any change to that five-year plan. Um, so what, what Councilwoman Her uh, Moreno's uh, motion will do, um, it's asking the city planning commission to, to come up with a recommendation on whether, um, you know, the relocation of Gordon Plaza residents, the redevelopment of that land, um, whether that should be baked into the five-year plan. Um, now, regardless of what the City Planning Commission recommends, whether they say it's a good idea or a bad idea, the City Council could amend you know, the, the five-year plan however it wanted. It just needs to have that recommendation first. So again, th this motion is kind of just an initial starting of that process, but you know, now the City Planning Commission has to go into motion on this. Um, and that will, you know, again, hopefully, you know, in, in Councilwoman Moreno's eyes, that will hopefully set up the city council to be able to amend the capital budget to include money for this. Okay. Totally understand the sentiment of the people who were there from Gordon Plaza, that they're being told yet again, that they have to wait for the city to do something. On the other hand, we're talking about, you know, $35 million here. The city simply does not have $35 million to move around in the, in the, in the operating budget. I mean, that's, um, you know that's uh, that 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 would be what like a five yeah it's five percent a little over five percent yeah a little over five percent of the total operating budget that's a huge amount of money for the city um, that would you know that would mean taking taking money out of departments that make the city run every day um, so the so really the only place that they can come up with thirty five million dollars is either is is through bond funding or federal funding that's allocated in the federal in the in the capital budget. If you want to, if you want to amend the capital budget at this point, once the five-year plan has been passed, it has to go through a process. That's in the that's in the city charter. So I completely understand why people were frustrated yesterday, but um, you know, realistically, this is the best opportunity to get the amount of money that is necessary to make this happen. And, and kind of a good, you know, uh, example of what what Charles is saying there is that you know, uh, Councilman Jared Brassett. Um, he did offer an amendment to the operating budget, which would have allocated $5 million um, to a special fund that would be dedicated to the relocation effort. Um, and that was kind of criticized all around. Um, Gordon Plaza residents, you know, um, said it was not enough money. You know, fellow council members pointed out that, um, you know, council, council member said didn't have a plan for where the other $30 million would come from. And yeah, again, argued that, you know, trying to tackle an issue like this from the operating budget just wasn't realistic. So um, that amendment was ultimately um, uh, voted down in a close vote. It was four to three, but but that did not go through. So it, it seems like the strategy, both from the administration and the council now, is going to be to tackle this through the, the capital budget. And, and, you know, what's interesting is that the council's kind of process now, it can either work in conjunction with the, the with kind of Cantrell's plan here, or it could work independent from it. So you know, it you know, it kind of gives the council some some more control over this process to either you know continue to facilitate Cantrell's plan on this, or if that falls through for whatever reason, or they're not satisfied with progress, um, you know, they can go in and, and kind of take that that budgetary control themselves. Okay, and quickly, I don't want to belabor this, but it seems important to point out that the entire budgeting process was. Uh, based on the underlying assumption that tax revenue would be back to pre-pandemic levels. And as 
Omicron circles, we have no idea at this point what it's going to do, but it's possible that the revenue levels are, take a hit. They, it's, it's not quite at pre-pandemic levels. We're still talking about a budget that is some uh, 70 or $80 million uh, smaller than it was so uh, pre-pandemic. So they're, they're, they are, they're, anticipating, they're anticipating some tax growth next year, um, but not nearly to the level of, of pre-pandemic. But yes, you have, a, you have a good point. We don't know what's going to happen next. Um, they are anticipating you know, significantly more um, federal money coming in from ARPA. Um, so you know, that's, that's a bit of a cushion for them. But uh, under the current framework, they're anticipating both the ARPA money and an improvement in, in tax revenue. So yeah, Omicron um, could cause some trouble, certainly. Right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time, and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelinsnola.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. All right, Nick. Bobby Sneed, the Angola prisoner who's suing the state parole board for what he says is wrongful imprisonment, had been ordered released from prison, but now he still remains behind bars. What happened? Bobby Sneed was ordered released on November 18th uh, by a district court judge. That ruling was, at first it was delayed 48 hours under state law, and then ultimately the judge uh, gave the lawyers for the the parole board until he he was ordered released on a Thursday and the judge gave the the lawyers until Tuesday evening uh, before Sneed would be released. Basically, they would need to get an order from the appellate court uh, blocking his release. Um, So on five o'clock, at five o'clock on Tuesday, um, if, if that didn't happen, Sneed was set to be released. Lawyers for the parole board filed an emergency uh, uh, petition to the appellate court on Tuesday afternoon, and the appellate court came back with a decision uh, just in under an hour before Sneed was set to be released, um, so around four o'clock on Tuesday. Not only not only blocking his release, but but tossing out his his lawsuit altogether. And the the basis that they are using that they're standing on is what? So the lawyers for the parole board are arguing that that. Basically, the court has no jurisdiction to review parole board decisions, um, which is generally true. Parole is a, a, a discretionary thing that, that the parole board has a pretty wide, you know, uh, range of jurisdiction on, and that's what the appellate court said as well. Is that basically the court has no no right to review this decision? Of course, what lawyers for Bobby Sneed are arguing is that. They're not asking the court to review a decision of the parole board. They're asking the court to 
you know, look at what they allege is illegal action on the parole board's part uh, in in stripping Sneed's parole and, and in the procedures that were used uh, to do that. Um, they say they, you know, violated a, a range of state and, and federal laws as well as uh, their own policies. So the appellate court's decision was really somewhat surprising and it was, it was only two sentences long, so it's hard to, to really know exactly what their reasoning was and you know it's uh, hard to believe that they they spent you know the decision came down just hours after they filed filed so there was a limited amount of time for them to to even really consider the questions that were in front of them so we have we have a pretty limited uh a view of what they what they thought about that even though this is just a single case it just it really gives you a lot of insight into you know the legal sort of framework for parole, as Nick said, it's a discretionary thing. This is not seen legally as being a right. This is seen as being something that is granted to prisoners um, as you know, as kind of a reward by a parole board that kind of can act within its own discretion. But Bobby Sneed's side is making two points. They're basically saying, you know, one, we're not talking about their legal authority overall. We're talking about they had two parole hearings on him. One, he was freed or paroled, and the other one's parole was stripped. They're, they're saying, well, that second hearing was an illegal hearing for various reasons. Mm. The procedures they used leading to it, the, you know, what the, uh, the what Bobby Sneed's lawyer says was the lack of public notice. These are supposed to be public meetings. And then they're also, they're, they're also making this argument that if, if the court is truly saying that the parole board has limitless discretion with no oversight, then they could deny parole for any reason. They could deny parole because, you know, someone is black. They, they could uh, rescind someone's parole who's been, I think the example he, uh, the lawyer gave was they could rescind somebody's parole who's already been let out, go and send sheriff's deputies to get him, and, you know, basically hold him in prison indefinitely um, because they have that discretion to do that. The lawyers for Bobby Sneed are saying, if you're really, you know, if you're really saying this, um, then this parole board has really a sort of, you know, just sort, just sort of awesome, limitless power to do whatever they want to prisoners. And and you know, the lawyers probably need say, you know, that can't that can't be allowed to stand. And that will be argued. But what you just said, Charles, how you how you characterize the parole board as having this awesome power and that it could be. It, parole is not granting parole is not a legal maneuver. It's more of a um, a wish granting or a, a, I forget how you characterized it, but you you basically said it's a gift um, granted by the parole board. The flip side of that is it can be withholding that can be used as a punishment. It's, right. So it sounds like the lawyers are arguing a little bit of that as well that this is retribution them oh, they're absolutely arguing that yeah they're they're you know basically when this all started when the lawyer who currently got involved is involved got involved is is is, is when we heard about this um, and at that point uh bobby sneed had been waiting to get out of prison for two months um we spoke to the lawyer we uh you know we spoke to bobby sneed's family um and uh you know, shortly after that is when uh, this, you know, stripping of the parole process started to happen in this very unusual way. And it was a very unusual way that it happened. I won't get into all the details. You can read some of Nick's old stories. But, you know, his lawyer is saying, well, you know, it, it, this very much appears to be 
uh, uh, retaliation for him taking this public and sort of airing out the dirty laundry of the prison system and the parole board in the press. And therefore, that, you know, that also brings uh, Bobby Sneed's First Amendment rights into this. He's being, in the, in the view of his attorney, he's being punished right. for exercising his First Amendment rights. So, Nick, what happens next? Well, his lawyers have appealed the First Circuit decision to the Louisiana Supreme Court in a, an emergency writ. Uh, so they filed that on Monday evening. As far as I know, they haven't heard anything from the Supreme Court yet, but expect to in the coming days or weeks. And then we'll see what the Louisiana Supreme Court said. They could decline to hear it. They could, you know, uh, or, or they could take it up um, and, and it could be argued. You know, the, the First Circuit ruling was interesting because what they, they could have simply issued a stay on his release and made, you know, if they were worried about him, him being released on the district court's ruling without having to look at it, without having had a chance to look at it closely, they could have done that and then heard the case uh, on its merits. Um, you know, they, they declined to do that. So I don't know. I don't know if, if this will be a, a compelling thing for the Louisiana Supreme Court or, or, or not. But we'll see. I mean, I, I think one thing to keep in mind here is when, when we did start covering this story, Sneed had not had his parole stripped yet, um, nor had he had a disciplinary hearing on the alleged overdose or, or drug use at the prison. Um, when we first started covering this story, the, the kind of question that his lawyer was bringing up and that, you know, I think we tried to get at was if Bobby Sneed used drugs, he's a 74-year-old man in, in, in prison and has been there for nearly half a century, the parole board had just recently, you know, kind of deemed him no, no threat to public safety. If Bobby Sneed did, in fact, use drugs in prison, is that a good reason to keep him there for, you know, several more years when his health is failing, um, and, you know, when his, his uh, children and grandchildren are, are looking forward to his release? Or are there better options, you know, in the community? Could he get care elsewhere? Um, that was really the question that, that, that this story was posing and that his, his lawyer was trying to raise. You yeah. also have a quote from A.G. Landry about crime rates rising in Louisiana and how keeping Sneed behind bars is protecting Louisiana citizens from violent offenders. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you just, just look at, you know, Bobby Sneed's age at 74 years old, I think there's quite a bit of uh, research that shows that, that people just generally have, have aged out of any sort of criminal behavior at, at, at that stage in their life. But, you know, the, the parole board is, has really dug their heels in um, on this. So, so it wasn't totally an unexpected statement. Right. Okay. Well, thanks, Nick. Thank you. Marta, the New Orleans City Council in January will vote on whether to take a new property tax proposal to the voters this spring. What's the proposed tax? Yeah, the uh, proposed tax will put, uh, be a five millage tax that the voters will be able to vote up and vote down in April. And that would create in revenue about $21 million for early childhood um, education seats in the city. Phew, okay. So this is the second time in the past few years that the city has floated an idea. What is different this time? Yeah, so th this was floated before as a, um, a millage, but it was part of a millage package, which would have reassigned a significant amount of money from the New Orleans Public Library 
to early childhood education seats, um, which critics of that package that Mayor Cantrell put forward last year absolutely criticized for a number of reasons, including that it was slightly deceptive and how much money it took from the library, which was about would have been about 40% of its operating budget, uh, but also in the number of seats it created, um, people said that would not have been, you know, a, a significant contribution to the early childhood education issues that the city is facing. Right. Well, yeah, it would, have, it would have only gotten us up to the same level that we were already funding early childhood education. It was basically the city had been funding early childhood education seats through a program called City Seats for at $3 million a year. Half of that was cut post-pandemic. And this, this was sort of sold as a way not to create additional seats, but to get back to $3 million again, which does not create nearly as many seats as, as you know, it, most people say the need is in the city. On top of that, strictly speaking, there was nothing in the law that actually guaranteed, or there was nothing in that proposal that actually guaranteed that any of that money was going to go to early childhood education seats. That was kind of just a promise that that the city was making. And certainly a marketing tactic. <laughs> yes. I mean, they sold this as a childhood education thing, but the bulk of that money that was being taken, that was proposed to be taken from the library, was actually going to uh, uh, a, uh, a sort of poorly defined um, economic development fund that we, you know, they didn't even outline what they were going to do with it. So what are the estimates of the needs and how close does this get to getting there? Officials estimate that there are roughly 6,500 to 7,000 um, seats that need to be added in the city for children whose families cannot afford to put them in a high quality early education um, environment, which we all know, you know, education experts, child, early childhood officials, doctors will tell you that being in a um, instructional early childhood environment is just so helpful for, you know, graduation rates down the line and just um, improved education and achievement overall. Um, and this this proposed twenty one million dollar millage or what will create twenty one million dollars um, at about fifteen hundred seats. Okay. And how about leveraging this money somehow to to close that gap? Yeah, so I talked to a consultant, um, Hamilton Simons Jones, um, who who said that that you know these fifteen hundred seats could in, in theory be doubled by different state and federal matching grant programs that are out there. Um, we're already receiving, the state is already receiving some money from the preschool development grant. That's a federal program. And there's also potentially money in the Build Back Better plan that the federal government is working through that could create more seats in the state and in the city. What does adding seats actually entail? Like, are these, is this money going to individual families who then can pay for private uh, early childhood education? Or does, does the city actually have to create some sort of programming? Yeah, so that, that's a great question, and that, that was one of my first questions, too. They're definitely still working on what this would look like a little bit, but essentially what would happen is this money would first initially help to build out these programs, right? Because there's not just 1,500 seats, like, lying around right now. They would have to be created in private um, daycares that we have right now. Then what happens is the city, um, the city seats program, um, the New Orleans School District administers the enrollment side of that process. So parents would apply for seats, and if you meet a certain um, family income level or, or below that, then you would be eligible for one of these, essentially called a scholarship, I guess. And that would go directly to the early childhood um, program that you then enroll in. What's the history in New Orleans of voters supporting property tax increases for education? 
Charles might have to help more on this, but I, I think it's generally been pretty strong. They passed a, a pretty big um, millage for facilities in the last is it five years, seven years. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's been pretty strong. <laughs> there have been a few. There have been a few millage votes in the past decade for early or for not early childhood education, but for K through twelve to support NOAA public schools. And as far as I remember, they've all they've all passed pretty pretty handily. Um, so yeah, I mean, Orleans Parish is is um, it, it, it's maybe one of a handful, if not the only parish in the in the state where uh, you know tax tax proposals have a pretty decent chance of passing. As would be a typical and, outcome for a, a largely democratic leaning parish, right? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, I mean, OPSB is the second largest collector of tax money, right, from property taxes. Yeah, mm. uh, I believe that's right. I believe they're right after the city itself. Yes. Marta, finally, I like to always do this with you. Uh, how are COVID numbers at schools? Uh, so COVID numbers uh, dropped in the report that was provided this week, but the district, um, you know, did acknowledge that that's likely a result of the Thanksgiving holiday, whether that's lower reporting, lower testing, um, or just kind of a delay in information. So I think we're, we're going to get a real picture of what what happened during the holiday and what is potentially happening with this variant in next Monday's report. And then I guess in the weeks to come leading up to the longer holiday break, that's that's going to be important to watch. Right. The mayor obviously addressed Omicron this week. Have we heard anything from the school district yet? Um, we have not heard anything specifically from the school district about Omicron. Um, I'll definitely be asking them about that. But I would venture to guess they'll you know, fall back on there. They have testing plans and they're offering vaccinations um, at school sites. So I would guess if anything, potentially they bolster that. Okay. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a good week. You too. Thank you. Thanks, Carolyn. Bye. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaacstein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.